I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our weekly podcast. Our signature is sharing stories of vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. Be sure to visit our website, womenover70.com. Here you can make a donation, join the Aging Reimagined Circle, and visit the Books by Women section. Also, invite us to conduct a workshop or speak to your organization. We can speak on a variety of topics that matter to women, and we're happy to share relevant clips from our podcast guests. So today, we're very pleased to welcome to our studio, Bette Martinez. Bette is 80, and on the surface, she's a veteran insurance broker who lives in Sunnyvale, California. She has specialized in long-term care insurance and health plans for seniors since 1988. However, Beth is an activist at heart. She created the Possible Society website, which celebrates the teachings that foster understanding between Jewish and Arab children. She believes when children learn to respect and appreciate the cultures, traditions, and history of the other, we also help them strengthen their own identity and learn to live together. Beth has many interests, among them advanced directives, funding a nasal therapy for Alzheimer's, <coughs> excuse me, and creating a palliative care video on a thumb drive. Beth, welcome to Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. Thanks so much to me. There's still more. <laughs> it sounds as though you've learned much by working with the clients you sell insurance to. And so I thought we could start if you would share with us what that is, what you've learned, and how it has informed the activism that you engage in today related to aging. Well, um, briefly, hopefully, um, I um, was working as a grant writer in the early 80s, and I created a, um, a grant for pe blind people to be able to learn algebra using talking computers when that first came out. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Fund for Instructional Improvement and in its wisdom, haha, um, they said that they funded blind people for two years and that was enough. We were just about to go into the classroom and actually try it after being trying it out with blind professionals. Mm -hmm. So not only did it stop what I was trying to create, but it also stopped my income and I had a son who was in a private Hebrew school and it was very pricey. And my husband at the time, when I told him he needed to make a little more money, said, what do you want me to do, sell insurance? He was a book dealer. And I said, <laughs> well, whatever. And then I saw an ad for insurance and I answered it. And the manager who was training me said, if people see dollar signs in your eyes, they won't buy from you. And I said, then I'll be very successful. <laughs> so I was and then I got very ill for about 20 years couldn't work and then I got some funding from the Department of Rehabilitation in California to go back and start my business and I did and I sort of really jumped back completely in about 2009 by 2015 16 I was you know up and Adam with my book published on long-term care because I couldn't qualify for it and I strongly believe in it um because of my health history. Mm -hmm. So that kind of puts me up to date. And my work is always coming from other people who recommend me, you know, a lawyer, a social worker. Right now, I just finished a 
by his retiring as a professor at Stanford and his wife is also highly employed as a, the first conservative rabbi. So, um, woman. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. And I just try to do the best I can to help people navigate the insurance world. And um, every time I think I'm going to retire from that, I realize I need to make, have a little more money. And also uh, people call me. So uh, that's Yeah, yeah. You, um, I know we talked a little bit about advanced directives and you feel strongly about them. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Well, what I feel strongly about is that there are lots of people, and I, I did a, a talk, I used my theater background to give some talks where I did a reading of a, a short story called The Knowers. And in that story, there is um, this proposition that in the near future, it's possible to go to a government office and put in a few numbers, including your social security number, into a little gadget that looks something like an ATM, and out pops a small receipt with the date of your death. Aha! And this woman does it, and her husband's very upset. And I won't say any more, but I would read this for 14 minutes, and people would stand around the round table I gave at the critical thinking uh, organization, and also in the library, and just stay and talk and talk about how they felt, about if they knew the date of their death, what, how that would affect them and how they, how they felt. And there are people who feel like if I get that um, diagnosis, I don't want to live any longer. I don't want to suffer. And there are other people who feel differently. And I realized as in the course of this that I feel differently. And I was invited by the uh, chaplain at Stanford to make this a video that would go on, that, and the lawyer advised that I put it on a thumb drive. I'm still kind of debating about how the doctors will know, do I get a tattoo, do I put it on the back of my driver's license, that I have this thumb drive. The video, again, being in theater, one of my clients who liked me did the video for free in the Rose Garden on uh, Berkeley. And uh, it tells the doctors that I want everything to be done everything possible and that I understand how busy they are, but please be gentle. So that's basically. You say you want everything to be done. What, what do you mean by that? I mean that I say, um, if you need to pound on my chest to bring me, keep me alive, please do it gently. Don't break my ribs. <laughs> okay. And if you need to put something in my neck to put oxygen in, please do it easily. I know how busy you are but I don't want to be hurt. I just want it to be done, you know, correct, correctly so that I can stay alive. And then I say, I want to be, um, I know that what's available is spiritual care. Anywhere you go is people will come and play music. You can ask for massage. And I'm asking if it's possible, there is a little bath thing that can be brought into your room and inflated it's plastic and then it pours warm water in so you're lying in a bath of warm water in your hospital bed you can get it please do cost 148 dollars on amazon <laughs> you know bet i just want to really uh, reinforce what you just said about putting this your wishes on the video because my experience at working with advanced directives and end-of-life options is that so many people think that if they just have uh, the documents 
mm-hmm. stuck away somewhere that that's going to take be enough, but clearly it, it, it isn't. So I think what you just described is, is brilliant. There's the, the um, that yellow thing you're going to put on your refrigerator is mm-hmm. only if those ambulance drivers grab it off. And then you have no idea if anybody's actually going to read it. And besides, mm-hmm. given that I am an insurance and I have helped a lot of my friends with this, there is a 17 page document. With, and I said this at the conference with two sentences on page 15 that you're allowed to put in two lines. Mm-hmm. saying what you want that's it and nobody's going to really read that mm-hmm. so i think that i would like to see some sort of revolution where people think about this because medicine is getting ever more complex and reaching people right now i have an email in i checked with an expert at the shield who i know and who i really um, trust my f plan with the best um company that i know allows me to call or walk into the office of any doctor that accepts Medicare and make an appointment, okay? But just Mm -hmm. trying to do this at Stanford, navigating it, I've had to tell them that I charge $250 an hour and I'm starting the billing right now. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. I'm going to use that line too. (laughs) Thank you. So, so, So all I'm saying is that navigating... The system, when you're relatively well and trying to see, as I am a neurologist who's actually doing the research, because that's why I'm happy that Stanford is, well, the traffic, it's not that close. But at any rate, you know, it's it's near enough that I can get there. So I want to find some doctors who are actually doing the research. Mm -hmm. And, Uh, And the research being what? Well, and anything. Uh, I had some modest thing um, with a breath test that showed that, you know, I could possibly get some sort of cancer, 4.7% chance. And I found the endocrinologist who is doing the research. Mm-hmm. And you know, I spoke Spanish to him, even though he has a name in Yuri, Yuri something or other, very Hebrew, Israeli name. And he said, how do you know I speak Spanish? I said, because Dr. Google told me, you know, you, you lived the first 10 years of your life in Mexico. He goes, oh, okay. <laughs> Trying to get a personal relationship with medical people who are doing the research to have them care a little bit about me while they're tapping their, you know, their keyboards and making those medical records and making those reports so they can bill so they can get paid, right? Unless they're Kaiser, then they're on salary and Kaiser's taking the money from Medicare and he's keeping it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I know. Okay. Yeah. So it's important to have some kind of to wade in because we do have some good research in this country, not necessarily the only place where there's good research, but we do have some good people doing that research. If you care enough, if that's your bent, I do. You see it's not always easy to find those people. That's right. To find those, if you care enough to want to do that. Yes. And being, you know, that I hit 80, you know. So one quick story that I like, a friend of mine who's 93, who is now writing her memoirs of, of um, how they got out of Germany at Berlin in 1941. Um, she's in a continuing care retirement place. It's kind of cushy and nice. Mm-hmm. And a woman who lives there uh, looks kind of young. And she's known her for 10 years. And every time they ask her age, she says, 73. <laughs> so last week, she had her 107th birthday. Oh, my. 
And so this, this, I just want to remind you about something called longevity. And so my friend says to her, okay, so now are you 74? And she goes, 73. <laughs> She's going to be 39 or 73 her entire life. Right? 39, you remember him, right? Yes. yes. That's You're Jeff point. Penny, right? Yes. The point is very right. <laughs> the point is very telling. And how long did Jack Benny live? I think he lived to his hundred, over a hundred. He was not. quite old, yes. Yeah. So, so, so uh, Bet, uh, when we spoke, um, you also told me about something you're passionate about being the nasal therapy for Alzheimer's disease. And and how did you get onto this? And what do you know about it? Well, so um, Nicholas Bazan. I don't remember exactly how I found this. I was going to New Orleans to give the talk at the American Society on Aging on Advancing Economic Security. And somewhere in my you know, wanderings of looking up my friend who doesn't like me, who, who was, my, uh, who was um, Bill Gates' roommate at Harvard, doesn't like when I say Dr. Google. So he's, he's an electrical uh, computer engineer. So I call him Professor Google or my... Uh, my Hebrew teacher calls him Rav Google. So anyway, I was just Googling around and I found this, uh, this guy, Nicholas Bazan, and he's a professor of uh, neurology and ophthalmology. And I found that he had come up with this ultra nasal spray that supposedly helps memory and you know connects things. So I emailed him several times and then my assistant noted that I had sent the, left out one letter. And so we resent it and he called me. Oh, nice. I called him because I hadn't heard from him. And he picked up the phone, mm -hmm. uh, which was really shocking to me compared to Stanford. And so we talked for about half an hour. I had already found out that he had written uh, some books and done a film called Of Mind and Music, which is a film about a woman at, uh, in New Orleans who was a jazz singer who was only alive and aware when she was singing in the streets with her assistant, her, her partner. And um, whenever she wasn't singing, she was just not there at all. It's really a beautiful movie of mind and music. I highly recommend it. So what's the name of this gentleman again? Uh, Nicholas B-A-Z-A-N, Nicholas Bazan. Thank you. So, but then I sent a lot of the data to a friend of mine whose husband is a um, VC in pharma here in Silicon Valley, and they looked it up and said it wasn't really far enough for it to be, you know, accepted uh, to be funded. They, he needed to get NIH funding, so I emailed back to him. We, were, we never got together in New Orleans, but that's another story. So basically, I'm sort of sitting with him on the back burner. Now I'm working um, to connect with this doctor in, in um I have to look her up again to show you the, her background, but you can look her up. Um, her name is Irina, I-R-I-N-A, and the last name is hyphenated, Skylar, S-K-Y-L-A-R, hyphen Scott, S-C-O-T-T. And according to my doctor who tried to get me a, get me in, um, she is no has no availability until May of 2023. Mm -hmm. How, what kind uh, of a doctor is she? She's a neurologist, sorry. She's a professor and doctor of neurology. And she's mm -hmm. doing, and again, she's doing research, but also she has a very compassionate background. She's interested in community and helping people in many, many ways. 
So again, that's why I'm backing up to what I started. I realized after talking to my, uh, confirming with my friend at Blue Shield that I can just go in and make an appointment. I then, rather than do that, I just found her phone number and it was just, you know, some Amy Sang answering the phone and not calling back. But then I also found her email and I emailed her yesterday and got a response that she's on vacation right now, but she'll be back actually um, today. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that I'll that she will respond to my email. I gave her two quick paragraphs about my health history and, um, you know, uh, seeking some compassion from her that she would see me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not in a hurry. All I'm trying to do is on my memory, having had two serious head injuries and an autoimmune disease is definitely fading some and I want to do everything I can to keep it alive while I'm doing everything I can through the Qigong, which if you get past the first page on the website about the Israeli um, hand in hand, um, I don't teach it anymore, but I practice an hour a day myself. And I just try to have other people, um, you know. I wanted to talk to you about Qigong and learn why that's so important to you. Okay, should we switch to that now? Uh, yes, do tell us about it. Okay, I just I don't want to follow your your thing and not go off on tangents. Um, <laughs> so, so in my health history, and this is what I told Dr. Avina Skylar Scott, um, I had a very severe head injury when I was uh, thirty three and one third, and the psychiatrist who I just talked to haven't talked to him in years told me he's a wacky guy that I. I knew that I was in advance that I was going to have this accident, not so I would avoid it, but so that I wouldn't be frightened. Mm-hmm. That was pretty scary, pretty strange, but, um, but he was right, possibly. Um, so I had a very severe head injury and smashed both my legs mm-hmm. up and was told I'd never walk again. And I threw the orthopod out of, orthopedic surgeon out of my room and told him I would not only walk, but I would jump out of airplanes. Because that's how I am. I don't know why. Um, and I did everything I could with yoga and uh, work with a man named Moshe Feldenkrais um, to get back to walking again. And I did yoga and so on, lots of things for the head injury. And that's when I say I got back into working and writing grants. So um, that happened first. And then uh, in 1992, I had, a, um, I had another car accident where I lost my front teeth and had implants done. And it turned out that um, what I thought was PTSD uh, from having been in a number of car accidents, the psychiatrist had me have all these tests done and I had the highest liver enzymes anyone had ever seen. And it turned out to be autoimmune hepatitis as a reaction to the mm. uh, collagen that was then in implants. And it took only eight years of me and my rheumatologist who became head of rheumatology at Kaiser to convince the FDA to stop using collagen in mm-hmm. implants. Oh my. Yes. Wow. Even after I was able to show that the company that was making it had, you know, messed with their records. So now they don't. And that's the, that's, that's it. So um, anyway, so I was very sick. Um, I was kind of navigated by my doctor who told me, the rheumatologist, that what he could do for me medically was like Russian roulette the, the pills that he could, you know, give me. And he felt the head of rheumatology, 
that I would find my own way. He told me to read, uh, see a movie called Lorenzo's Oil. And I came back and said, you know, this is a movie about parents who have a child who's dying and they find the, they find the answer. And you're asking me to find it, the answer. And I'm the one who's dying and I have a child and I'm in the midst of a divorce from the guy who wouldn't get into insurance and make more money, right? So I said, and I have to keep my kid in, in school and take care of him. So how do you think that I'm going to find the answer when you can't? Mm-hmm. And he said, I have faith in you. And within a week, not knowing as I do now, that the liver and the eyes are connected because I couldn't see anything. Um, I made a mistake in the old phone books that I had and called a friend of mine told me to call the acupressure school because he was studying there, a sociologist retired. And I called the acupuncture school and it was the student clinic. And they told me to come down. It was $15, which even in those days wasn't a lot of money to see a student. So he drove me. I went, they took my pulses and said, they'd never seen such weak pulses on a live human being. Hmm. And they had me introduce me to a professor who had just come from China, who was a specialist in herbs. And what I say to the very rational people is that unless I were cloned and one of me took herbs for two years and the other one didn't, we have no idea if I taking the herbs was what saved me. But all I know is over the course of two years, my enzymes returned to normal. And through the possible society, my same friend brought me to this hotel And I participated in a conference called Healthy Cities. And at that conference, uh, I went to the workshop of a woman named, um, I have to remember her name, Barbara Burney. And she's from Atherton, which is a very wealthy suburb of, you know, Silicon Valley. And she somehow convinced then Governor Brown to make acupuncture, uh, to license acupuncturists in the state of California in 1972, because she had been at Pratt Institute teaching she got some kind of serious illness and acupuncture saved her. And so then she became an acupuncturist. So she was giving a talk again. I was there and I said, I have always been a believer in alternative medicine, but right now I'm standing where the rubber is hitting the road. I'm dying. Do you have any recommendation for me? And she said, come see me after the talk. And then she gave me the story of how she'd gone to China to have surgery for cancer because she wanted to have acupuncture afterwards. And she'd been welcomed as she was awakening by a um, two women who came in. She thought they were nurses and they picked her up very gently and began doing these very gentle, helping her do these very gentle movements. And that was Qigong. And she, uh, she strongly recommended that I find a Qigong teacher and learn it. And within a week, a neighbor at the gym at the condo I was living in told me about this class that was right a mile, less than a mile away from where I was. And it turned out to be that this teacher, her husband was a famous Tai Chi teacher and uh, was a school, Wenwu school. And she had gone to China to learn from this special woman who was the 13th generation. This is the part I don't care for. So I'm just going to make a short interruption, Gail. We have a custom in our culture called Lodorvador. That means Mm -hmm. that we take our children from a very young time and we educate them in all the traditions of the, and we hope that they will become as much as they can take in of understanding what are, what this, you know, there's no secrets. And in China and India, all this yoga and Qigong, it's all so secret that only gets passed on if you are, you know, 
perfect and wonderful enough to be allowed to get these secrets. And what happens then is that you have in China, the barefoot doctors tradition, where the government says, oh, yeah, we can just dump down this stuff. And then everybody will feel like they're seeing their neighborhood doctor. You know, so it, it's just watered down. But I was very fortunate to learn from my teacher who learned from someone who learned from her grandmother, grandfather, who taught it to her because he knew there was a war coming, the Opium War. And she was the first woman in a 2700 year tradition. So I learned the wild goose Qigong. And what I found was that the way that encouraged me to practice was by teaching originally at a, um, it was a poor people's uh, nursing home. Uh, and we call them the Rockettes. We had them kicking. And then my teacher recommended me to some senior center. So I just began teaching four times a week. And that's how I practiced. <laughs> Understand? Now I don't have to do that. When I moved, I stopped teaching um, in Silicon Valley from Berkeley, uh, Palo Alto area. And so now I practice an hour a day on my own. And I'm learning a lot by doing that. That's just amazing. Amazing. And, and um, go ahead. Can I ask a question? I just, I'm so curious about, uh, Bet, about, uh, can you s say what the difference is between Qigong and Tai Chi and Feldenkrais? Because they all seem to be about gentle movements. Yeah. So <laughs> well, I studied with Feldenkrais, and he's quite a character. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I won't say much about him, except that he developed his own methodology, and, and it hasn't been really passed on. And I felt very sorry because, um, he just wasn't a great teacher, but he, what he discovered was really phenomenal. When I called Israel to, because I, I had read his book, um, he was so well known there at the time in the uh, 70s that the operator said, well, I can give you his phone number, but he's not in the country right now. <laughs> That's pretty good. Huh? So anyway, uh, so I'm going to skip Feldenkrais and move on. I studied Tai Chi in New York uh, to just become more flexible when I was back in theater. And my teacher, William C.C. C. Chen, uh, would argue that um, Tai Chi is not a relaxation methodology. It's not gentle. It's a martial art. Mm. So there's a wonderful YouTube that you can find if you look at it. Where he's, um, what's her name? Obama's wife, Michelle, is um, in China doing Tai Chi. And so they find William C.C. C. Chen. He's now 86, I think, when she was there. And they interview him. And it's uh, two black uh, uh, announcers on, I don't know, CNN. And uh, the, the, the guy is like six foot two and William's about five foot eight, seven. And uh, so William says, oh, yes, it's a gentle exercise. It's so relaxing. You just breathe. And then he says, and by the way, and he gives him this little, he says, why don't you put this on? And he gives him this little sort of um, vest to put on that's very protective. And then all of a sudden William goes, okay. Now watch this. And then he goes, pop, 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 and hits the sky. And the guy falls back and almost falls over. <laughs> oh my God, what's that? That's Tai Chi. Tai Chi <laughs> is a martial art, according to William. <laughs> we had to wear gloves. We had to hit, you know. So that's what the origins of Tai Chi. And it's about, he really went through with Chan, some, some specialist in Taiwan to capture the essence of what the Tai Chi teachings were. So that's kind of what I learned in Tai Chi, which I took for a couple of years and taught a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I did it when I was pregnant too, because I didn't know anything about Qigong. Because um, my insurance guy told me I should get a maternity coverage when I was almost 40. And sure enough, two months later, I was pregnant. 
So I did Tai Chi. <laughs> so then um, with my son, who's now 40. So um, Qigong is uh, a more of a mind body. I call myself a Taoist princess. I don't think anybody else has ever used that title. So it's a mind body spirit kind of exercise for want of a better term. So it's a breath and movement combined. And now I've developed from the, what I learned at Zayen, I add trees, looking at trees. And that sort of imbibe the spirit of the trees as I'm moving and how the leaves rustle and changes my movement and where my fingers are and so on. Is that enough or do you want more? Yeah, that's that's perfect. Thank well, you. Well, no, one more thing. Oh, one. And that is how does Feldenkrais fit into all of these three? Oh, Feldenkrais? Well, Moshe was in, um, I think he was a physicist or something. He was a scientist in Europe. And uh, then he had also some physical ailment and he did some research and he developed his own uh, practice. And the book he wrote is called Awareness Through Movement. But he was not, I called him, I was in San Diego. I found his name through some of the people I was seeing when I was recovering from this car accident. And um, I called him and he allowed me to come up to take his uh, summer long, the third year of his summer long training. And it was the third year of it. And uh, when I got there, a couple of people knew me because I used to dance with a dancer called Anna Halperin. And they said, oh, you can't just come walking in. I said, well, Moshe told me I could. And he arrived and he saw me sitting there. He said, who are you? And of course, don't start with me. You know? So I said, I'm the person that you accepted. I accepted your call collect and paid for it. And you told me I could come and here's the bill. Got it? <laughs> so you said I could come. So he said, sit down. All right. But then he, he told me I could not touch anybody. I couldn't put my hands on anybody. And I said, that's fine. I'm not here to treat people. I'm here to get well myself. So Margaret Mead came and I used to live in her neighborhood. Remember Margaret Mead? Mm -hmm. Margaret Mead is one of my sheroes, by the way. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I wanted to get her in because it's such a great story. I knew her in New York and um, a little bit because we lived on Bedford Street and not too far away. And we'd see her walking in. And of course, she also was a hero of the woman who started the Possible Society, but you can read that on their website. So anyway, Margaret Mead arrives in this black cape that I swear she hadn't cleaned in, since the years I'd left, lived in New York. And she's sitting there and he's standing there trying to make her, you know, impress her. And he said, there's a camera and, and, they, and, the, and the camera woman brought her baby. And he said, you see that baby? It's sitting up with its head up like it's already standing, just as I say. And Margaret Mead gets up and hits her cane on the floor and goes, Moshe, will you stop trying to impress us and just get on with telling us what you do? <laughs> and he just folded. And so I love that. I love that moment. That was a really key moment in my life. And when he worked on me personally, I said, Moshe, you spent a whole summer, and it's actually the end of three years, telling people about your program. And what I can see is 5,000 different movements that you've taught. Do you really think that anybody at the end of this will be able to take it on and teach what you've taught us? And he said, maybe a few if they spend five years teaching themselves, maybe a few. Mm. This is so important because nobody knows anything about Feldman Christ today. My physical therapists haven't heard of him, except one who graduated from Stanford who's real wacky. 
but it's very, it's kind of sad because by the time I left, I could actually put my right foot, not my left, because that was shattered, but my right foot up behind my neck. Mm. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, time has a way of going very quickly. And we love these conversations and we love being in conversation with you, Bet. And before we leave, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about now, after being through all of this, having been through all of this, what, how are you navigating your own aging? Well, um, my great, so I was kind of adopted by a wonderful mentor, Dr. Ruth Inga Heinzer, and um, she had started a conference on shamanism and alternative modes of healing. And I don't really remember how I was connected with her. This was not, not long after I was you know, sick. And in 1994, she brought me into her conference to do presentations. I took her to see, um, what is her name? A woman with three names who wrote something, who, who presented in about 1992 in Los Angeles, um, an actress. And she, um, she played all the roles. She would record people. So Ruth Inga said, why don't you do some kind of presentation? And I did a presentation about the nine lives of Sarah Bat Asher, who was the youngest uh, daughter of um, Jacob, uh, excuse me, of um, Asher, when they returned from Egypt, having seen their father, having seen their youngest brother, Joseph, and now he was emperor of all of Egypt. So Sarah was, um, was honored by her grandfather by being given a very long life and I played all the different roles and I would give I would give presentations now where was I going with all of this he asked me how this relates to your own aging yeah so that really kind of brought me into another level of my awareness and being um and it's sort of amalgamates back what Ruth Inga taught me and I said, I will write this down because I won't remember it, but I've never forgotten it, is be in the moment and do what the moment requires. Mm -hmm. And that's how I navigate. If I can't remember Anna DeVere Smith because I have delayed recall, mm -hmm. okay, that's her name. It came back to me. Yes, if I yeah. get all worried about it, you know, then it's going to be a problem. So. I, I brought this thing out from the booklet from the place where I live. And this group of seniors are sitting around a, a, a donut shop. And one says, oh, my arms have got so weak. I can hardly lift this cup of coffee. Yes, I know my cataracts are so bad. I can't even see my coffee. I couldn't even mark an exit collection election time. My hands are so crippled. What? Speak up. I can't hear you, said the other lady. I can't turn my head because of the arthritis in my leg and several of the neck, several of them nodded weakly. My blood pressure pills make me so dizzy. I forget where I am and where I'm going. I guess that's the price we pay for getting old, Winston old man, as he slowly shook his head. The others nodded in agreement. Well, count your blessings, another added cheerfully. Thank God we can all still drive. <laughs> <laughs> on that note <laughs> yeah. okay thank you so much bet this has just been delightful I feel thank like you. i've been on a on a trip a wonderful yes. trip 
Thank you. And listeners, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review wherever you listen. Also visit our website, womenover70.com and easily access all of our episodes. Become a member in the Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined Circle and enjoy monthly programming beyond the podcast. And see you, we'll see you next Wednesday on Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined.